is a good software developer? What do excellent developers do? There are probably as many answers to these questions as developers in the world. So let's ask veterans and newcomers what their story look like. Let's learn directly from them. Welcome to Developer's Journey. Hello and welcome to Developer's Journey, the podcast shining a light on developers' life from all over the world. My name is Tim Bourguignon and today I receive Rob Allen. Rob, thank you for joining me. Hi, thank you. Uh, we are here in Estonia, in Tallinn, a beautiful city of Tallinn, um, for the TopCon conference. We are. Yes, we are. And I just um, saw your talk today. Um, you are a web developer and you were talking about serverless today. That's right, yes. That was um, quite interesting. Maybe it will be uh, the topic of this discussion. But first things first, um, we would like to know how you came to being here. What were the... The big roadblocks, the forks, the interesting path um, okay. that led you to becoming a developer and then becoming someone that is able to give a talk on serverless at such a conference. Wow, where did you start? Right at the very beginning, I suppose. However you want. I've been in this for a long while now. Um, and I wasn't a developer before I got to university. So a lot of people go get into programming as a kid. That was not me at all. I had a computer. I used it for playing games. Um, I'm old enough that my computer was an 8-bit computer. Mm -hmm. But I really wanted to be an electronic engineer. I wanted to do electronics. So I took a degree in electronics and discovered I can't do electronics at all. <laughs> not good at it whatsoever. However, I was really good at the software section of the electronics course. And so I went that way. I enjoyed it. I wanted to do more electronics and I did summer jobs. Do, sorry, more computing. So I did more summer jobs with programming, uh, weird languages. Uh, the first time I got paid to program was in Fortran. Mm -hmm. The second time I got paid was writing embedded software into a microcontroller. And then I got a job in C++, writing Windows applications straight out of uni. And then I moved from doing desktop applications into the web about the time of the browser wars. So that probably wasn't the best time to become a web developer at the front end. But the back end was really interesting. So I really liked being able to distribute my application onto my server and it working on everyone else's computers via the web browser without me having to recompile and release software. Mm -hmm. I really liked the, the centralized server for you know, back-end web development. It just made the whole deployment thing so much easier. Mm -hmm. So definitely the future from my point of view at least. Mm -hmm. um, web applications back then, PHP, Perl were the main languages. So I did mostly PHP when I went into web. Still doing PHP. The language has got so much better since when I started. Um, it's no longer the PHP that people remember in a lot of ways. Um, yeah, it was good. Then 10 years ago, I got invited to talk on a panel at a conference in London, UK. Quite liked it. Quite liked getting a free ticket to the conference. That was good. Mm -hmm. Discovered I quite liked sharing my knowledge. So I applied to more conferences Got a little bit of help from people 
suggesting what I should talk about and encouraging me to submit to conferences, to share what I know, wrote blog posts from that. Yeah, it became sort of slightly well-known in the PHP community, I suppose, mm-hmm. at least to some small degree. And you look at where we are with web today and monolithic applications, and then you look at where we want to be in the future. Things like serverless will start looking really interesting. Mm-hmm. So that's where I'm focusing some of my energy because I think serverless has got a really big future. I think you can't go wrong with its basic cost model. Mm-hmm. The whole idea of not paying unless your code is working, I think is a wonderful one. Mm-hmm. I'm not old enough to remember the last time we did it that way because punch cards were before my time, fortunately. Uh, I have people I know who use punch cards, but that wasn't me. So now we're at serverless. We're doing the same basic idea, timeshare of computers, but in a far more robust and better way than we've ever done it before. Mm-hmm. Containers are awesome. I think tech's so good now. It's a really interesting world to be in. Mm-hmm. It's interesting how we... Um um, recreate the same patterns again and again. Um, yeah, you see that all the time. Uh, we give them different names, mm-hmm. but over the years, you start seeing the same problems being solved in similar ways, maybe, but slightly different based as each new generation comes up. Uh, the classic example being uh, build tools. Mm-hmm. So when I started, we all used Make, and then Java came along, and we all used Ant. And now we all use Grunt or Bower or something, Gulp or whatever it might be that you start by typing NPM. Mm-hmm. But it's the same basic problem that's been reinvented multiple times mm-hmm. for different communities. I still think Make is one of the better solutions in that sphere, uh, but they all solve the same basic problem, but slightly more focused towards the community that needs to use them. Mm-hmm. Certainly the Java community benefited a lot from Ant and that way of building applications in Java. The Node community, and well, not so much Node, the front-end community for building um, from less and SAS into CSS and what they're doing with JavaScript and minif- minifying JavaScript has benefited a lot from Grunt mm-hmm. and Gulp. So, yeah, the technology reinvents itself to a certain extent. Mm-hmm. I think it's quite exciting. I quite like it. It is, but but still, um, serverless is not growing as fast as I expected it. That's an interesting question. Well, it's not really a it's question. Not a question. question. <laughs> interesting thing to think about. Um, I don't know what people expected because it's quite different to the way you normally think about working. So it's only three years old. Mm-hmm. It's not very old at all. You know, Lambda was announced in November 2014, so we're only three years in. I don't know. I don't think, I think it is being used more than people think. Uh, maybe not as much as the venture capitalists would like us to use it, maybe. Because mm-hmm. it doesn't solve a real problem. And we have to rethink the way we build. And we don't do that quickly as a community. Mm-hmm. We're relatively slow. For all our fast changing technology, we're relatively slow to adopt brand new ideas. At least I think we are. That's so true. It, I'm not totally surprised. The first two years, no, serverless was mostly or completely JavaScript only. That's quite limiting in terms of the pool of available developers. Mm-hmm. It's only recently that you've got Go there, you've got Python, um, OpenWiz has got PHP now, Ruby's around. And we need all those languages if you're going to become a fully-fledged developer ecosystem. We're not all going to start writing JavaScript, let's face it. Um, 
all of us can write some JavaScript, but not all of us want to spend our lives writing JavaScript. Mm-hmm. So the other languages have to be there. The whole idea of decomposing your application into small blocks, not having an always-on server, that's a really different paradigm. So I think it'll take some time. I'm not surprised. Mm-hmm. How do you go about, and um, I wouldn't say convince, but, but try to ease people in into this serverless um, idea when they have used monolith um, for their whole life and, and hosted it themselves and, and had everything on premise um, since ever? With extreme difficulty. <laughs> um, okay. the, the way I see it and the way I'm seeing serverless turn up is mostly by stealth. What's happening is that there's a new requirement that's slightly separate from the main application that needs to be done. And you start seeing that being done in serverless. Okay. Um, we need to pr- perhaps process something. We need to start doing, um, create a whole load of thumbnail images from this S3 folder, something like that. You discover people have dropped a serverless function in to do that little bit of work. So the way monolith still exists, nobody's going to throw away all that code, particularly if it works and it's making money. You're not going to throw away. That'd be silly. But the additional work, the bits and pieces, the cron jobs, you start seeing those become serverless over time because it's an easy way to add additional functionality without risking the stability of your main code base because you can just pull it off to the side, particularly if it's not on the critical path. Mm-hmm. Because then it becomes free. It's probably low enough volume that it's in the free tier for Lambda. Mm-hmm. So your first use case hasn't cost you any money either. That's quite motivating for developers. It's interesting. So you're starting to see little bits of service come in. Mm-hmm. And then someone hooks in a DynamoDB if they're on Lambda. Or if they're on Google, they've dropped in a Firebase DB or something like that. Because they needed to connect to something that's mobile. And all of a sudden, you've got a bit more serverless has turned up. Mm-hmm. And... I don't think you go out your way to replace your monolith with a serverless application any more than you take a monolith and turn it into microservices. Most people are not doing that. Most people are extracting a bit of their monolith that needs change and making that a microservice whilst leaving the rest of the monolith alone. Mm -hmm. And I think serverless is going the same way. We have our main application. We have these additional functionality. We start building those in serverless. We discover that we can roll those out five times quicker that we can get approval for a new release of the monolith. Mm-hmm. So we do a bit more serverless or a bit more microservices. And suddenly half the application is now in this serverless microservice, serverless or microservice world. Mm-hmm. And then the new app comes along and that's built over here now rather than over there because it, we know how to do it over here quickly. Mm-hmm. So I think it goes that way. I could yeah. be wrong, but that feels like the way people are doing it. It makes sense. And you, the VC people are different. Now, you've got VC money, you can do what you like because you don't have a boss. Well, you have a boss, but you know, you, you're going for um, Acquihire or you're going for a big payout later. Mm-hmm. Uh, Lucy, you've got lots of money and, lo- and not a lot of time to come up with something that's got scale. Mm-hmm. Serverless is good for that. Serverless is really good for going to scale cheaply because until you've got scale, you're not paying any money. And VC bad people like that because they don't want to spend the money on stuff they don't need. They'd rather spend it on developers building the stuff that's going to turn them into the next big thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. Um, 
when you have this monolith just to build around and just don't leave the monolith uh, be and, and uh, work around it. But how do you go and change the mindset? Because um, I used to talk about what I did um, half a year ago. I built um, a small service that is um, with zero line of code. Just yep. made using um, Zapier, IFTTT, Flow, and, yep. and services like this. Yes, you've built a serverless application. Exactly. Um, and when I presented this to people um, in my company, the first reaction was, ooh, this is not programming. Yes. And the second application was, uh, reaction was, but there's not even Java there. There's no application server. And so <laughs> um, I was... I was kind of doing it on purpose because I know this reaction would be coming. Um, how do you go about this mindset of saying, well, serverless is something new and we don't need this and we've been doing it for years differently and it worked? It depends who's mind you're trying to change in way. Like, take your little example there. Management didn't care at all that there was no Java application service. Mm-hmm. Customer couldn't care less. Mm-hmm. And I think most developers are not as set in their ways Maybe as you think they are. They give the impression they are because people are comfortable with the tech they know. But people also like tinkering. As a developer, you like messing around with things, particularly if they are low risk. We we like hobbying outside, not necessarily of our comfort zone, but outside of something critical. Mm -hmm. So I don't think it's as hard to change people's minds. It's maybe the perception is, certainly amongst um, more flexible minds, maybe. I was going to say younger people, but that's not necessarily true. Um, age doesn't actually affect how flexible you are towards new technology. But there are definitely groups of people who, once they've found their hammer, everything starts looking like a nail. Mm-hmm. But there are other people that are always looking at the next thing. Now, that's what Kubernetes comes from. For instance, Docker comes from... Um, we're looking for a better or cooler way or a more flexible way to do something. And if you are used to the idea of doing more than one way of doing something, adding a new tool isn't that hard. Mm-hmm. I don't think. Makes sense. I'd like to be proved wrong. <laughs> right. I'd like to be proved right. It would make sense. So we'll see. How do you go about, about um, adding new tools to your, um, to your tool? Uh, in a very expensive way. Because I'm self-employed. So... Uh, I make money by clients purchasing things off me, but me producing work for them. And that tends to be in relatively conservative um, industries, mm-hmm. uh, enterprise corporate type work, which tends to be fairly, what's the word I'm looking for? Behind the times, maybe. <laughs> well put. Um, not necessarily at the bleeding edge, but... I don't want to be a COBOL programmer in my old age. You don't? No, not interested. I don't understand that. Nobody wants to be a COBOL programmer, <laughs> except COBOL programmers. And in 15 years' time, I'm not going to be doing what I'm doing today. At least I don't want to be. So I need to ensure that I keep my skill set up. So me personally, open source projects are the way I do this. So I contribute to open source projects that enable me to experiment with new ideas and new ways of doing things or things that I don't do in my day job. Mm-hmm. On the PHP side, I lead a open source project called Slim Framework, which is a micro framework, which is pretty awesome, if I do say so myself. I didn't write it, a guy called Josh wrote it, but I'm currently the lead developer and we're working towards the next major version. 
and that's got some quite exciting ideas in it. Uh, I'm also involved in a Python project around converting restructured text markup into PDF called RST to PDF. And that's really different type of work, which is quite interesting. Mm-hmm. Python, which makes a change. Um, documentation, that's document, uh, no, markdown documents into a, well, it's not markdown, but marked up documentation into PDF. So a completely different type of thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, serverless, I'm involved in the OpenWIS project. Again, it's open source one. Mostly for interest on anything else and learning and it's Scala behind the scenes. I've never written Scala before, so that was exciting. Mm-hmm. Still is exciting. Mm-hmm. Uh, scary. Uh, but I'm not going to be a single person, single trick person because you can't as a programmer nowadays. Mm-hmm. Uh, when, when do you sleep? I sleep all the time. <laughs> <laughs> I don't. Um, yeah, that's, this is why I said it's expensive because I do it during time that I could normally be working. Mm-hmm. So conceptually, I get my company gives me 20% time mm-hmm. to do open source stuff. I, okay. I choose not to work every billable hour for my clients in order to ensure that I am learning new things. So you know, there are X number of working days in a month. Some of those I do open source work on mm-hmm. because it's interesting. It is. Yeah. doesn't make me any money there. It builds your reputation in your toolbox. It builds reputation, it builds toolbox, it builds knowledge, um, it builds connections with people. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think that's one of the biggest benefits of open source, contrib- con- no, contributing to open source, coming to conferences, is mostly about the people than about the technology. Mm-hmm. I think meeting people like you, meeting all the other people I've met at TopConf, these are now people that I can talk to. Mm-hmm. You know, we, I know your Twitter handle, I can talk to you after the conference. Um, I've met Ewan, who spoke this morning on FN, another serverless platform. If I need to know anything more about FN for some reason, I've now got a contact. I will talk to Ewan. He knows who I am because we've chatted here at this conference. Mm-hmm. Conference last week, I met someone called Alex Ellis, who runs another open source project around serverless. So if I end up doing anything with one of my clients where they're using something that's in his sphere, I can ping Alex and say, hi, Alex, I'm Rob. We talked last week in London, mm-hmm. can can we discuss this problem I've now got or whatever? And people come to me in the same way. I get people pinging me saying, hi, Rob, we met at X conference. I've now got this problem. Can you give me some pointers? Mm-hmm. And I'll give them pointers and we build a network of people and become more than just me. Mm-hmm. I don't want to be just me. There's so many other people out there that we can talk to and learn from. I love this. Um, I love this um, uh, this hallway track. Yes, uh, conferences. It's um, some people who don't know that this is um, one of the dedicated terms, right? So yes. uh, people hanging out in the uh, in the AL and just talking to each other, and sometimes even missing on a talk, and because they were absorbed in one discussion. Um, yeah, I've done it many times where I've skipped a talk slot, not the one I'm giving, obviously, <laughs> but someone else is in. A, now I'm in the track, and I'm talking to people. We're having a really good discussion. We're learning things. Mm-hmm. Carry on the conversation. Mm-hmm. The talk, I can probably catch up later. Probably. Nearly always. Mm-hmm. But I can't catch up that conversation ever again. Mm-hmm. Those, those relationships are so valuable. Yeah. I think over time, even in your career, the chances that you get your next job from people that you now know through your community of people you've met at conferences, 
or you've met via um, open source software contributions tend to get you jobs that are more likely to be what you're good at and what you want to do. Mm-hmm. And it's far better than going via a recruitment agency. If you can avoid a recruitment agency, that's normally a good move. <laughs> um, but who you know is definitely still a thing. Okay. Um, programmers like everyone else network. We just don't call it that because that's too corporate and businessy. We don't network. We hallway track. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's the same basic idea. We meet people, make connections, make friends, share our skills, mentor each other, become mentored mm-hmm. and grow. Mm-hmm. Do you have any, um, any trick that you could reveal, um, how to, uh, to break the ice or how you, you get, um, into discussion with people? Not really. Um, I cheat because I speak at conferences. So you're more likely that people are going to come up to you and say hello and ask you a question or something like that. I've got over my embarrassment of forgetting people's names. It's took many years, but I can go up to someone and say, hi, who are you? And then two minutes later, I've forgotten their name. But I'm getting better at saying, oh, I'm sorry, I've forgotten your name. Could you tell me it's okay? Um, but you, you go up to a group. There's... Once you join a group, it's a fairly good idea to try to make sure there's always a gap in the group. So people standing tend to form circles. Mm-hmm. You'll notice this. You get a group of about five people that are in a circle. Mm-hmm. Try to make sure there's a gap in your circle so that other, someone else can join in. They don't have to say anything, but it lets them in. And sooner or later, your circle will get too big, and it will magically split into two circles anyway. But yeah, I do the normal boring things. Hi, I'm Rob. I come from the UK. I'm interested in serverless or I'm interested in PHP or wherever I am. What are you interested in? What are you talking about? What excites you? And conversation goes from there. Mm-hmm. So I really enjoyed the last talk. I really hated the last talk. What was that developer thinking? Mm-hmm. <laughs> or yeah, that's learned this really cool trick. What did you think of it? Um, it's not easy just to wander up to a stranger and talk to them. It's harder for me at least in non-English speaking countries. I'm not multilingual in any sense. So if you take here, we're in Estonia. Most of the conversations are not in English. So you walk up to people and there you're talking English to someone who's maybe English is not their native language. And that's slightly harder to get the conversation going. But then you end up in interesting conversations anyway. Mm-hmm. So, and you learn some things. Yeah. Um, the, the, the circle you described, I know this as the Pac-Man principle. Yes, exactly. The Pac-Man so principle. Always have a Pac-Man with the open mouth. Yes. Uh, but unfortunately, most people are too young to remember who Pac-Man is now. <laughs> oh, no, come on. <laughs> <laughs> we remember Pac-Man, but there's a whole generation of people who've got no idea who Pac-Man is. Oh, boy, that might be true. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I, I, was, uh, I was given a, a trick a few years ago. Um, is to go to someone and ask for a referral. So not, not try to get information from this person directly. But say, hey, I don't know anyone here. Um, do you know maybe people I'm interested in, for instance, serverless? Do you know mm. someone who I should talk to? Oh, that's a good idea. Because uh, this way, this way you are not, um, you are not cornering this person. They mm. don't have to um, remain with you and, and talk to you. They can just um, redirect you to somebody else and just get rid of you <laughs> if they want to. Yes. Um, uh, or talk to you. There's still this option, but and it it worked wonder with me, and I do that at every uh, oh, user group. So just go straight to the uh, to the organizer who usually know the most people are there, and introduce myself and say, well, um, don't want to take too much of your time. Just point me at somebody I should talk to 
for this topic. It works wonder. Yeah, that would do if you pick the right person. Yes. And if um, not, well, pick the next one. <laughs> try again. Yeah, that would also work. Mm-hmm. Um, that's a benefit, say, of being the speaker at the conference. You're fairly likely to get people to come to you. Yeah. Or more likely. Has um, it worked for you? Generally. No, once, once I've spoken, mm-hmm. there's a, now a group of people at the conference who recognize your face. Definitely. And you're no longer an unknown because they've heard you speak. Mm-hmm. And if the speech resonated with them in any way, mm-hmm. there's a slight bit of connection there. Mm-hmm. You know, I tend to open my talks with some sort of personal thing so that you know something that's slightly more personal about me. Like if you were in my serverless talk earlier today, for instance, you know I've got two children because mm-hmm. I've mentioned my children in the talk. So there's something that's slightly more personal if you don't want to wade in with something technical. Mm-hmm. You, you can ask me about my teenagers and what they think of me being a, out here, for instance. <laughs> um, Absolutely. It just helps a little bit. It makes me feel more, look more approachable. Because you, I don't want to be that remote expert that you can't talk to. I don't think many speakers are like that, but it would be quite easy for someone to think they don't know enough to talk to the speakers, which is absolute nonsense. And most of us don't know everything. If you're a JavaScript programmer, you know so much more about your field than I'll ever know, for instance. So there's always things that you know better than I know. Your field as well, I don't know anything about what you do. That's definitely not my area of expertise. Yeah, th- that's what I experience as well. Uh, people not wanting to bother you um, as a speaker, and I spend actually uh, uh, more time alone at conferences than that's interesting. Uh, than than I think should be. Um, yeah, maybe. I mean, but you can always go off to someone as a speaker and say hi. Th- that's what I end up doing. But uh, it's what? more this way than the other way. No, that's interesting. Or maybe so, I'm just giving shitty talks and uh, <laughs> people don't care. That's also an important. Uh, also, I suppose it depends on the communities and the conferences you're at to a certain extent. Mm-hmm. This one is slightly more reserved than, say, some of the American conferences I've been to. Mm-hmm. Uh, but then I'm generalizing to a certain extent on my opinion of the American people, which I will keep to myself. <laughs> As an Englishman. <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, let's go back to the teenagers. Mm. Um, what would you, or what advice would you give to the next generation of software developers? What, what would you want to imprint in their minds? Understand about communication. The key thing about being a developer is that you communicate. And there's been a meme going around for a while now that developers can't communicate. And it's absolute rubbish. Complete and utter tosh. You, to be a good developer, you have to be able to communicate. You have to be able to communicate your ideas. You have to communicate with people, whether they be your peers or whether they're your bosses or whether they're your users. You need to be able to communicate with people, understand how to communicate, learn empathy in order to be a better developer. I think that will take you further in your career than just about anything else you could possibly do. Certainly the technical side, comparatively, is trivial. It genuinely doesn't matter what technology you learn. It doesn't matter which language you learn. You can't learn the wrong language. You can't learn the right language because how long is your career going to be? 40 years? You're not, the chances of using the same language 40 years later is relatively slim unless you're going to be a COBOL programmer. <laughs> I.e. you're going to end up as a legacy programmer in a language that is no longer relevant. Nobody wants to do that. Well, some people do, but most people don't want to do that. So you're going to change tech over your career. 
Now, I started off writing Windows 16-bit applications, essentially, and Windows 3.1. There is no Windows 3.1 now. I could still write in Windows programs, but I'm not. I then moved on to PHP websites. Now I'm an API developer. Life moves on. Your tech will change. The tech is easy to pick up. The, knowing how to communicate means you can talk to more people and parlay into other tech and other technology so much easier. Communication, that's where it's at. You've got to be able to talk to people. Mm-hmm. You've got to be able to write down what you're thinking. You've got to be able to read RHEL so you can understand other people's ideas. Mm-hmm. It's all about communication. It's all about understanding where people are. That's where the empathy side comes in. Mm-hmm. Helping others get better, being helped yourself. That whole side of things is what makes the best developers. And how do you train those skills? With extreme difficulty. Because, like everything, you practice. Um, how do you become a better pianist? You practice. How do you get better at communicating? You practice. You write documentation. You improve your comments. You do comment. You write better commit messages. You review other people's codes in open source projects. And by doing that, you're forced to communicate what you would like them to change about their PR or what you think could be made better in this PR. And again, it comes back to open source is a really good way to do this stuff. Because if you review someone's pull request, you don't have authority to get them to change their pull request. So your words have to be persuasive to persuade someone that what you think is wrong with their code and could be improved is motivated enough for them to make that change to that pull request. So it's practice. It's just practice, practice, practice. As with everything else, we, we just have to practice. We don't get better at unit testing without practicing. I was in a talk before our conversation today um, on code cutters, which is entirely about practicing in order to get better at testing and getting better at cross- software craftsmanship by repeating very small examples over and over and over again. We do the same thing for communication. And one of the easier ways is to code review or be code reviewed or pair program. That's another good way. Um, be the one who stands up and is prepared to hold the whiteboard pen in meetings. That's another good way. Um, I don't do much corporate work, so I'm aware of whiteboards and those sort of things, but it doesn't happen to me very often. Um, but I have to write reports for my clients fairly frequently. Um, best advice I've got. Okay. Um, if you were to, uh, to hire someone today, what would you be looking for? Someone who could communicate. Yeah. Um, and how would you go about then and, and judge this? Judge um, is not the word, but... Probably the same way. Um, I'd ask them to write down how to architect something, maybe. Here's a problem. Describe the solution you would use. I don't particularly want the code. It's really easy to train someone up in code if they're keen. Um, see their portfolio and you've done the technical side. That's easy. I'd want to know that they could communicate their ideas to me. I'd want them to... I'd probably give them a PR to review. So here's a PR on this on I don't know, RST to PDF. Can you review it for me, please? Or even better, tell them, pick an open source project that you're interested in. Review one of the PRs for me. You don't have to put it on the website. You, know, you can write it down just for me. Mm-hmm. It's, try, try to persuade me how to make that change. Um, things like that, is, I think, would be how I would look to hire. I can't imagine hiring someone, though, because then I'd have HR... And then I'd have to do payroll. <laughs> There's a whole load of bureaucracy that I personally don't want to do. But those would be the ways I would approach it. Mm-hmm. Um, when I worked as a technical director for 
my previous company, I was always looking for someone's ability to talk to me mm-hmm. and communicate with the team more than their actual ability to code. Though we did do some basic tests, right? there was some, a, a fundamental base level of technical skills you needed for the job. Mm-hmm. But that was trivial, to, absolutely trivial to test that bit. Mm-hmm. So much harder to, to find out if someone can work as a team. Have they got the empathy? Have they got the communication skills? So much harder to work that out. It is. If it was easy, everyone would do, of course. And we all struggle to hire. Definitely. <laughs> um, we're reaching the end of the time box already. Wow. Yeah. Um, is there something we miss, we should talk about? No, I don't think so. Do you have something on your plate coming in the next week, month? Not particularly. Um, we're coming to the end of the year, which is nice. Next year, I'm going to be focusing on getting RST to PDF SNETS version out. So that will be 0.94. Uh, that project has languished for a long while, so a new release of that will be really good. And by the focus is Slim Framework will be pushing out a version 4 next year, which will be a major release for the framework and will be quite exciting. Mm-hmm. So exciting stuff coming up. Oh. Um, yeah, cool. Good, good. Then it's been a delight talking to you. Thank you. And uh, I wish you the best for the rest of the conference. Thank you very much. Enjoy it too. And this has been a new episode of Developer's Journey and we'll talk to each other in two weeks. Bye-bye. A small announcement before I sign off. 2018 is not yet over, but I'm already well preparing 2019 and I need your feedback. Please head over to survey.devjourney.info and answer the few questions I prepared for you. Please help me understand how to produce even better content for you in 2019 and help even more developers grow on their journeys. Thank you. Dear listener, if you haven't subscribed yet, you can find this podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Music and much more. And if you like what we do, please help your fellow developers discover the podcast by rating it and writing a comment on those platforms. Thanks again, and see you in two weeks.